That's what UNICEF does. We exist to make sure that every child in every corner of the world can live the best life that they can and they can thrive. And that is, we will never give up until we, until that's happened. Welcome to the One Up Project. Money is fuel that, that allows you to do things. It doesn't need to be taboo. What you don't want to do is wake up at 65 realising you did something you hated and have regret. Go and find people who will give you advice for nothing. This is a space for personal growth and money chat with new perspectives every Monday. This bit of content, listening to this, is going to be a small little breadcrumb of something that makes them think a little bit differently. For all the things we were never taught but should have been. At the end of the day, the most important person is yourself and if you're not happy with your own choices, then you're never going to be happy. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the One Up Project. Today we are talking to the CEO of UNICEF Aotearoa, which for me is a very exciting interview because I have quite a big passion for progress in this world, for impact, for doing something good. And charities kind of sit at the center of what we believe is doing good, right? To give our money to contribute a resource to a better world. But often I am wondering, how can we ensure and keep these charities accountable to those goals? How do we know they're actually contributing to a better world? Where's our money actually going and how is it being spent? Those are the questions we get to answer today with Michelle Sharp, the CEO of UNICEF Aotearoa. So I'm very, very grateful to have her on the podcast. We're also going to be talking about how to leave a legacy through your will to charities and also just a few questions for her personally around her career and how the charity space has kind of influenced the way that she lives as well. She's an incredibly inspiring leader, someone who I really admire after having this conversation. And I think we're so lucky to have her experience on the podcast with us. So please enjoy. Let me know what you think. Leave a rating and review. Appreciate you guys for being here and we'll talk soon. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate your time. Uh, Before we sort of jump into the bulk of what this episode will be about, I wanted to hear from you a little bit about your role with UNICEF and where your passions lie. Kia ora, Sarah. And yeah, just to start by saying thank you so much for having me today. It's absolutely amazing to be on your podcast. Um, So yeah, the role of UNICEF, um, I have to say it is an incredible privilege for somebody like myself to really have what I think is the best job in the world, to be the CEO of an organization that does every single day, you know, to wake up and do so much good in the world for children is remarkable. We are the largest children's um, charity in the world with the greatest impact of any other organization for children globally, which is pretty amazing. And that is everything from responding to an emergency where children are displaced and they're in absolute, in that moment, in absolute need, through to a lot of the development work we do, which is, as an example, here in our neighborhood, we work in the Pacific region uh, to help children to make sure that they stay in school, for example, by providing water and sanitation, which is one of the main reasons why children drop out of school because they get sick or because some of the young um, girls in particular end up having to spend their day walking to get water. But by putting facilities into schools, safe, clean drinking water, it means we can keep children in school and and everything in between. We immunize most of um, more than half of the world's children around the world today. So You know, what's such a great sense of purpose to be able to wake up every morning and to um, need an organization that literally is life changing for so many children in the world is um, pretty special, I have to say. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. And we were talking a little bit off the record about 
your kind of history as well and how you were in the corporate space before and then moved into this space what's kind of that change been like for you both personally and professionally yeah so my career is pretty interesting um I'm basically at a point now where exactly half of my career has been spent in the corporate world in the sort of high-tech technology um space and then exactly half of it in the for purpose world really interestingly it's not linear so it's not like I stopped being in the corporate world and then moved in the full purpose world. And that's what I've done ever since I've dipped in and out of it. So I think that gives me a really unique perspective in terms of both, both spaces. The one thing I can tell you is uh, having gone in my previous role back into the corporate world, it really made me realize that I think I was put on this earth to use the tool of good business, good practice, creating good cultures in a workplace, um, empowering people to be the best versions of themselves in order to do good in the world. So I've really got to the stage where I think I know myself and who I am as a leader. And it would be very interesting to see if in the future I ever go back into the corporate space. I can't imagine doing that now. That said, I think there is a space just to say, and I certainly did that last time around, where you can go into the more um, for-profit um, world and actually embed a really high sense of purpose in what you do, which is something that um, I really enjoyed doing. But yeah, being um, able to lead an organization that is purely existing for such a high level of, of purpose, it's transformational. It's transformational for me as in terms of what I get up every morning and do and what keeps me like super, super engaged and um, and alive, I guess, in terms of the work that I do. I love it. Mm, that's, that's amazing. I think it's a dream, honestly, to wake up every day and love what you do. It sounds incredibly full on and you're obviously so passionate about it. Is it also quite high pressure honestly being a ceo is high pressure whatever um being a ceo of a um not-for-profit is i believe much harder of being a ceo of a for-profit because you've got many more dimensions to consider in terms of you know you're you're not there just to make a you know sell products and services to make a shareholder or make profit you're actually having to make decisions around your impact, which sometimes are counterintuitive to what makes pure just business sense. So I think we we work in many, many more dimensions, um, which is exhilarating, right? Because at every decision that you're making, you're thinking about what is the impact that I'm having in our case, in terms of the well-being and the happiness and the thriving of children around the world. So every decision has to take that into account, not just is this good business? Does this make good sense? Is Are we meeting our strategy? Are we turning up as we should be? But are we actually thinking at the heart of this decision about our impact? And I love that complexity because, you know, it's um, it is yeah much more com- complex than just turning up and saying, let's make money. Mm, I in so many. Yeah, it is. And I in so many ways wish that that was kind of the norm across business generally that we were thinking more in terms of what's our impact uh, as opposed to what makes business sense and something you'd mentioned earlier was using the tool of business for good what exactly does that mean to you I guess leading off what you were saying before every one of us and and, you know a diverse workplace and with diversity with a culture of inclusion where everybody can be their best version and come to work with the best version of themselves all of us with different skills different experience different background is what makes um you know that's what makes business magic if you if you see what I mean and I think, you know, for me, the tool of business for good is actually enabling a diverse group of people to turn up to work, understanding that core reason why we exist and being able to bring out the best version of who you are in a safe environment where you're empowered to actually draw on your skills, draw on your experience for a better world. And, um, 
you know, that is super powerful, I think. And it's super powerful in any setting. You, you apply that then to an impact enterprise and it's incredible because, you know, everything that you're doing can then be multiplied to reach, in our case, more children um, and do more good in the world, which is, you know, yeah, it's amazing. Mm, so interesting that to have that lens on it because you really do have to put the focus on providing a safe space for the people in the company internally for them to be almost, I guess, aligned to creating that same safe space for people externally, which are the children globally. That's absolutely right. I mean, um, I, I believe that in business there are two bookends to everything that we do. And the, the, almost the start of the bookend uh, on one end is actually your culture. And that is about creating an environment where everybody's turning up to work, understanding the role that they play in meeting our, you know, our purpose, our mission, um, and, um, and feeling safe and empowered to, as I say, be the best version of themselves when they do turn up to work. And at the other end of that, you have your brand. And that means that you have a brand that is understood, um, trusted, transparent, um, and, and engages well with your, in our case, our donors. So our donors understand what we do they believe in us and they they therefore want to engage more with us which in our case becomes a donation right and i think if you have those two bookends really really solid it makes everything else much easier um so i spent you know for me as as a leader i spent a huge amount of time investing in that cultural element to make sure that i'm providing an environment where my team can be who they are and be the best diverse version of who they are and bring them their whole self to work uh, which is, um, as we know now in this day and age, which wasn't the case when I was younger, certainly as a young leader, is so important. Um, but diversity only works if you have a culture of inclusivity and you have to respect the fact that we're all different. And I think if you can get that balance right, whatever your pursuit is in business, you can be the best version as an organization um, that you can be. And in our case, that's so important because we have donors who are trusting in us with their money to um to actually do good for children in the world and for us maximizing every dollar is so important and i think by creating the culture where our team are so happy and empowered we can do that to the best of our ability yeah amazing amazing i really am keen to jump into how that um that culture then creates more transparency and trust within the unicef brand itself but i think before we jump into that could you tell us a little bit about the origins of of unicef so unicef was established um just after world war ii in 1946 um if you think about world war ii there was a huge amount of displacement at the time of children around the world so in its first instance it was set up really as an emergency entity to help protect the children who've been displaced as a result of the war, very quickly realizing that actually there are children in need around the world, regardless of war or despite of war, as well as because of war. And um, since then, UNICEF has existed in a, over 190 countries. As I said earlier, we are um, the largest children's um, charity in the world. And we work in a range of um, areas from you know thematic areas around water and sanitation as i mentioned early childhood education regular vaccinations all the way through to um you know to responding whether it's the late you know the likes of ukraine for example you know as we know there's a war in ukraine and those children are displaced overnight so we provide these safe environments where we can make sure the children who are having to flee their villages their homes are um, are protected and are given as much of a sense of normality as well as meeting their immediate needs and as well as making sure it sounds awful that uh, through these terrible periods that they're encountering, a lot of people take advantage of children and will try and 
traffic them, for example, which is not a nice subject, but that's what UNICEF does. We exist to make sure that every child in every corner of the world can live the best value, uh, the best life that they can, and they can thrive. And that is, we will never give up until we, until that's happened. So it's a, a, a big uh, audacious challenge, but we will never give up until every single child um, has done that. Yeah, no, I'm inspired by a big, hairy, audacious goal. So I love that. I think that's incredible and amazing. Uh, and I think so many of us, we can feel helpless, you know, when we see things like this happening around the world. We don't feel like we have kind of any part in contributing to the betterment of those situations because we see something on the news. We're like, oh, okay, this is happening. What can I do? I'm just this little person in this other space mm -hmm. of the world where there is peace or we don't know that those things are happening or where they're happening or how they're happening. Um, and so that feeling of being helpless kind of is combated by our ability to contribute to the betterment of those situations through something like a donation and I think I've always been quite curious about how the donation process works once you've given the money over and like from your perspective if you could explain that to us how you know once I've given uh, once I've given a certain amount of money what happens at that point Yes, so clearly every charity operates differently, so I can't talk on behalf of all charities. One thing I can say on behalf of all charities is to make sure that whatever you're telling a donor you're doing with that money, you're actually following through and doing. So that's kind of a, the kind of standard minimum <laughs> that any charity should be doing. So in the case of UNICEF, and I can't, you know, every charity is different. We are, you know, in the case of UNICEF, we are one of 33 national committees that exists around the world, and we are part of the very large fundraising backbone of UNICEF that allows us to operate in the way that we do which is probably different to any other charity that i really know which is we don't work on projects we work on programs so we are very long term um, in terms of how we operate which means that we're normally there before during and after either an emergency or a crisis or anything like that so if we think about the fact that every charity should do exactly what they say they should do with the money i'll then speak about unicef and how your donation is um is applied so let's take and it, it's different every donation is different so we have multiple ways that you can get involved in the impact of unicef let's take you as a monthly donor you donate 30 dollars a month to unicef you have understood and trusted our brand because you've got to know us and that money comes to us and that money is used for what we call the greatest need so we receive that money in New Zealand, the money gets received in Australia, in the UK, around the world. We send that money as soon as we can to New York, where they collect all the money. And then that money is distributed around the world where the greatest need is for children. So it's always going to be about children at the heart of everything. You may, however, be a different donor. And let's say you did grow up somewhere around um, Ukraine and you're really passionate about the fact that children in Ukraine are currently you know, having a really, really tough time. So you come to UNICEF and you say, I want to give you either a recurring or a one-off donation that is going to end up, that, that you want to go to help children in Ukraine. And that could be, you know, food, it could be shelter, it could be making sure that they're psychologically safe, you know, a, a whole array of things that we do um, with children in that situation. That money will then be tagged and your money, because you've told us that that's where you wanted to go, that could go to Ukraine, to you, that will go to Ukraine. In the same ways, because of our neighborhood, you might say passionate about education and making sure in particular that you know young girls, for example, are empowered to continue with their education because we know that the stats are that they drop out. I want to make sure that I'm investing in that. So that's kind of, uh, and then we make sure that money goes there. Um, that's your regular donations. But 
I think we're here also to talk a bit about a legacy because a lot of people think about legacy and wills as something that only you know older people, older generations do. Which is actually we need to um, we need to change a narrative around this because most people get to a point in their life much younger than than we would think where really having a will is so important. And that is the second you have any kind of asset and you think about it and, you know, even myself as a young person, I assume the will is something that I need to do at a point in time when I'm, you know, maybe when I have children and I have, you know, I have wealth, but actually that's not the case. You know, if you own a car, you have a car, it's worth $15,000, you've paid it off. At that stage, you should probably think about the fact that you should have a will because you have an asset and you may want, even as a young person, for that money to do something in the tragic event that something happens to you, you want to be able to have a say on what that legacy does. And a legacy is a different way of donating to a charity. It is a way of saying, oh, I have something, I care passionately about X, Y, Z in the world. And let's just use UNICEF again, you know, you may care massively about um, the empowerment of, of young girls in education and into leadership, as an example. And you can say, actually, I have something that if something happens to me, I can actually put something aside to know that beyond my time on earth, I can do something about this. And you can stipulate in a will, for example, that that legacy is set aside to do exactly that. So in terms of, I know the question was, where does the money go? Um, Transparency by charities is absolutely paramount. So not only should we be, whether it's a legacy, a monthly donation, a one-off donation for an emergency, we should be, and we, we do, act on exactly what it is that you want that money to do. And it's not just good enough to do that, but we should be coming back to you and saying, hey, Sarah, thank you so much for either your monthly donation or your one-off donation, or the fact that you've told us that you've put some money, that you've put UNICEF, written UNICEF into your will, this is what we're doing, and this is how you're holding us accountable to that money. And that's how it should happen. Um, yeah, so the, the technical things of how each charity does it will be different, but all charities should operate in that transparent um, and accountable way. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so key. And kind of coming off, um, jumping on, what your point was UNICEF offers free wills alongside footprint and I've had Belinda uh, from footprint on this podcast before talking about wills and the importance of having them especially when you're younger or why someone who's younger should care about them and so I think the element of legacy you pointed out is really key because many of us want to give back and we want to make sure that we're giving back in a way that is meaningful that is productive that is actually helping someone and so that transparency element is is super key could you tell us a little bit more about how that works in terms of leaving money to charity in a will yeah so I actually think this is such a great way to um a to have a legacy as we've just said b to know that you know beyond your time on earth you are going to be backing something that you're super passionate about and which kind of falls into a legacy but kind of knowing that that is ring fence but also it is such a different way to think about giving if you think about it so different stages of our life. I can talk about myself. You know, I've got up and down the career ladder through my career, depending on having children, all sorts of things. There have been times in my life where I've had quite a bit of disposable income. And I've chosen at those times to give monthly donations to a number of charities through my life. And then there have been other times through circumstance where actually, you know, money's a bit tighter and I don't have as much disposable income to be able to choose to do that. But I'm still passionate you know, about the passion, the things that I care about. And in my case, very much children, of course, working at UNICEF, very passionate about what you've heard me said a few times about um, women in particular and empowerment for women. That's something that I'm very passionate about. So 
there may be periods in my life where I don't have that disposable income, but by having a will where I'm actually saying, I want to put and ring fence a percentage of my estate and the word estate again sounds quite scary. It could be literally an asset like a car. I want to give a percentage of that car. Let's just to keep it simple, a percentage of that $15,000 to UNICEF. What that can do, especially if we as a charity know that you, Sarah, have said, I want to leave 20% of my um, of my estate, which is a car, um, into for UNICEF, because my passion is X, Y, Z, we can make sure as a charity that we are accountable to you through that period until that legacy is realized. It's such a powerful thing that I'd never really thought about it like that until I'd got involved in the charity world myself, that by leaving something in a will and telling the charity that you're doing that through the time that you're, you know, you're, you're thriving, you can actually have a relationship with that charity and hold them to account because you want to make sure that UNICEF is behaving in a way that means that you don't change that will and put the money somewhere else or do something else with that money. So it is a very powerful way to ensure that you are almost, you know, not like imagine in, in a corporate world, you have a shareholder that's dictating how a company behaves and how a company performs and where they put their efforts. A will does the same in the charitable world in that regard, because for us, those those legacies are the long term the long-term golden juice that allows us to be the best version of what we can be because we have a future. And it's such a powerful way for people, however small that that legacy may be, they all add up. So never think that a legacy have to be, has to be millions and millions before we sit up and pay attention. It's the multitude of many, many, many small ones that has the power to hold us to account in everything that we do, which is so powerful. Mm. And I think that there has to be a mindset shift in terms of a will isn't something that you do when you get to a certain stage where you're thinking, actually, I should probably do one now because if something happens to me, we should all be thinking about that much earlier on. And with the relationship and the partnership with Footprint, what a better way to do it. You have a free will service. And remembering that also, I think that's, and hopefully this was spoken about before, that a will isn't something that you do once and you put it in a drawer and you forget about it. You, it, you know, it should be something that can be modified as you're, life evolves and changes in at different points in your life. You know, you may make a will today with your $15,000 car that says, I want 20% of, you know, 20% of um, my estate to go to UNICEF and the rest X, Y, Z. But then in another five years, you might have children and therefore you want to modify your will because actually you want a 50% or whatever it is of your estate to, to remain with your children. And then you get to a later stage in life where your children have are independent and you know that they're kind of safe and secure. So you, you may modify it again. So it is, it, you know, I think it's a very different way of thinking, certainly from when I was young, a very different way to thinking about a will um, than a once in a moment um, thing that you do. Yeah, it's, it is interesting because often with finance, you know, often when we're talking about financial literacy on this podcast or have in the past, you're either thinking quite short term like what's what's the next goal what's happening in my life or you're thinking long term for your life like what's retirement looking like what's my life looking like beyond the next 10 years but with a will and with what we're talking about it's not even long term it's kind of completely different to that it's more thinking beyond yourself like you're not thinking about what's your future your long-term future but what does how does that impact the people around you and, and how does it impact the society around you as well in terms of the UNICEF element of that? Yeah, and I'd love to give you a case study. Actually, it doesn't relate to UNICEF, but it was such an incredible, pure case study of what a legacy can do. 
if that's okay. Um, yes. I was through another charity. It was a disability charity in Christchurch. And um, out of the, well, it wasn't quite out of the blue, uh, an amazing gentleman that we'd got to know, um, he kind of really saw the vision for what this charity could do and be. And what was a surprise, because we didn't know, he hadn't told us that he'd left, a, um, left something for this organization in its will. And he left, um, he left a legacy in his will. And when he passed, we got informed of that. That legacy basically created the platform for an entire new chapter for this organization that was so transformative that it became a case study in the social enterprise world globally. That's the power. And I just wish I could go back to that gentleman and say, do you realize what your gesture has done for an entire community for the next 50 years? That is the power. And it wasn't an enormous, by the way, it was not an enormous um, legacy. It was just enough to give the confidence to do something with it. And I think that's what we really see at UNICEF as well is, you know, whether it's the $1,000 that comes to us, sometimes we're really, really grateful to get, you know, $2 million, but they're few and far between. Lots and lots and lots and lots of the $10,000 legacies, the impact that that can have in terms of us planning for the future is absolutely phenomenal. And you know, you think about the world that we live in today and the challenges and the crises that many, many children, whether it's in Aotearoa, New Zealand or globally are facing. We have climate change. That is a massive, very confronting issue that this world is facing. And this is a violation of children's rights for the future because it's not their making, they're doing, but they're the ones growing up into a world where, you know, um, climate change is affecting everything. And that, the result that that has on, and other things have on mental health as well. That's a huge issue, as we know. Mental health has become an enormous um, growth, unfortunate growth area for, as a problem in societies. So, you know, these are, not, these are not issues that are solved overnight. They require long-term investment. And they're not issues that are happening in one pocket of the world. These issues are happening in every corner of the world. And... Of course, the monthly donations that we get from our incredible donors are so important for the today, but the legacies are so important for us to plan for the next horizon to ensure that we can create the world that our children at Amariki, our youth, our Rangatahi are able to grow up into. Mm, absolutely. And we've spoken about the element of impact and how, you know, within your work, that's a lot of what you're kind of keeping UNICEF accountable too is what is their impact and we can also keep them accountable through things like wills and our donations so what exactly are we keeping you know a charity or UNICEF accountable to like what are the measurements of success for UNICEF yeah absolutely and a great question Sarah for us everything is about impact I mean it all comes down to that and it's about transparent impact so UNICEF as a United Nations organization like many other non-UN organizations, should all be working to what I call the world's to-do list, which is the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. You know, I really think that that is globally our combined to-do list, and it's not looking great. You know, we have 17 UN SDGs, and um, actually every single one of them in our case could, you know, um, impacts children if we either hit them or don't hit them, it's good or bad. So what I think you're holding us accountable Two is as the children's largest um, charity in the world is making sure that for the UN SDGs that we're making sure that we're hitting all the marks that we have to around the impact 
the children. So that is accountability. Now, in terms of that, it's about providing transparency, the use of technology to be able to tell you as a donor exactly where your money's going in a really transparent way and allowing you the flexibility, whether it's through your monthly donation, your one-off donation or your your um, legacy to actually um, change that and, um, and and put that money where you as a donor, as a somebody who engages with UNICEF is the most passionate about, or where in the case of our most trusted, the donors that trust us the most to say, UNICEF, I trust you so much. I'm going to give you my money because I know that you as the largest children's charity are going to deploy this money to wherever the greatest need is. And I trust you to do that on my behalf because you're the expert. So either way, we're just so grateful. It relates back to what we were talking about before. When you had mentioned that, of course, you know, this role working within UNICEF can be quite high pressure because people are trusting you to make the best decision with the donations that they are wanting to give you. And I think it's quite interesting because what I would imagine as being an extremely high pressure decision is deciding and prioritizing what is the greatest need like how is that actually prioritized that is honestly the hardest thing that we do sarah and it's it's here in new zealand and it's globally it's really interesting because when you work for an organization like unicef it's so easy to say i want to help every child in any way i can because we all work here you know we we choose unicef because we're so passionate about the cause you don't you don't go and work for a charity well it's very hard to go and work for a charity if you don't believe in the cause, the reason why you exist, like so wholeheartedly. And I hope that's the same in the corporate world as well, but sometimes people just see it as a job. That is not the case when you work for a charity. I can tell you this now, it's 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 a, you know, it's a vocation, it's passion driven. It's because you want to use your skills and your day job to actually make a, make a, a, a difference. Um, so I think, yeah, that is, that is the biggest differentiator between a corporate world and a charitable world is when you work for an organization like this, it's so hard not to do everything for everyone. So what one of my roles is, is to say to the team, right, here's a strategy and here's our focus. Let's really understand what do we do for who, but let's also equally understand what don't we do because actually there are other entities that do a really good job of that. And that's really, really hard, but it's that discipline that you have to have and the focus to say, UNICEF does this, 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 and this really well we go deep on that and we're actually moving the needle rather than going super thin on everything. So yes, it's hard and the pressure is hard to work out where the greatest need is, but by being really disciplined and by having a global strategy that says, you know, we are, we're focusing on climate change. We're focusing on mental health. We're focusing on immunizations. We're focusing on social protection and, and a handful of things that we can say, we're going to do those things really, really, really well it means that we hold ourselves to account both globally and locally to do that. Because otherwise, you know, as you say, you know, there's so much need in the world that you could just spread yourself so thin that you don't do a good, or you can do a good job, but not a deep job of any of those things. And I think, yes, it's stressful. Yes, it's pressure, but you've just got to back the fact that you have a strategy and you stick to it and you become focused. Mm. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, that actually should be the case in, any organization. But I mean, it's even harder and more important when you work in an organization that is um, providing a role of impact in the world. Mm. So it sounds like UNICEF's greatest need is identified as or translated to the strengths that UNICEF has as a business to be able to contribute to a better world. 
That's right. And as I said, I mean, I touched on this earlier, our differentiator from the other incredible, incredible charities, and we partner with most of them around the world. So this is not a competitive landscape is the difference between us and and others, some of our, you know, the large entities that you would probably, you know, associate similar, doing similar work to UNICEF is we're there, our skill is to be there before, during and after. That is different to the organisations that come in during an emergency, do the very needed giving out blankets, food and whatever, but then go away again. What we do is we are there before we have a relationship already with the communities, we have a relationship with governments, we're working from the top down and from the bottom up. And then when the other entities, organisations, aid organisations, go out, we then stay to re- help build back better. So that is our kind of differentiator. And because we know that that's what we do and we do it really well, we work programmatically rather than project-based. So you imagine an organisation that comes in during an emergency, that's an organisation that is project-based. It comes in, it does what it needs to do at that time, then it extracts itself when that immediate need's gone. That's project-based. Programmatic is where you're there for the long term. You know, we've worked in countries... Um, like um like syria for decades because you know we start we were there beforehand we were then there during um the conflict and now we're there helping rebuild over years so that's that's kind of our um our strong point i guess compared yeah. to and, and that's good to understand what our strong point is so that we allow others to do the best version of what they can do as well yeah so is that programmatic globally yeah so globally definitely it's programmatic globally so you know as i said you know we already vaccinate more than half the um, world's children and that is you know against vaccinations which are in some cases providing um very needed um uh, vaccinations towards life-threatening diseases that are totally preventable so um so programmatic globally definitely um and how we do it, the one thing I will say is a lot of people ask, well, what do you do in New Zealand as an example? So we still work programmatically in New Zealand. The difference is in New Zealand, we have a government that is incredibly capable. So our role in New Zealand is much more about advocacy. And I'll give an example. You know, we've just had um, the terrible devastation off the back of Cyclone Gabriel. So, you know, the likes of Red Cross straight in there helping in the aftermath of the immediate um, disaster. That is exactly their strength. In the case of UNICEF, at the time where Red Cross are doing that, we are engaging with youth, we're we're understanding the situation to make sure that we can inform government, local authorities, in terms of when they're building back, building back in a way that is taking children and youth's future needs into account. So that the the next time the next weather um, phenomenon comes through, that actually we're better prepared through the lens of youth. So that is the difference between a project-based work and programmatic. How we work in different countries depends on the um, the situation in the country, if that makes sense. So we still work programmatically in New Zealand, but how we do that is much more through advocacy, through helping government make really good policy decisions around that affect children and youth by by making sure you know we have. I don't know if you've seen. So proud of this. Our um, recent launch of our Young Ambassador program. It is so amazing i'm like honestly this is you can see i'm smiling like it's one of the just proudest moments in my career to see these incredible young people that we picked from lots of applicants who are already um creating a platform for the voice of youth to be heard and that's the sort of thing that we can do and so in new zealand that is our role is to not to be the voice ourselves but provide the platform and the education for young people and how to advocate in the best way to be heard you know, having meetings with ministers to make sure the voice of the youth is coming to the forefront of the messaging. 
Um, so working long-term with government, with the community, to ensure that um, the future of, of youth in New Zealand and the young people in New Zealand is heard and appreciated and understood. Mm, yeah, providing that platform is so important. Uh, I, I was thinking as you were talking around, you know, you can't do everything for everyone all the time. And you were explaining that concept in a professional environment. But has that kind of impacted you personally as well when you think, you know, have you moved that over to your personal life to think, well, I can't do everything for everyone all the time, especially in this demanding job. And so I need to apply those same techniques or, or ideals within my personal life as well. Absolutely, Sarah. That's such a great, great question. So um, I have two children. Um, my daughter Isabella has just turned 18 and my son Louis just turned 16. But of course, you know, now they're older and more resilient. But once upon a time, they were two and four, right? And at that age, I was trying to be a super person. You know, I had a startup in the UK, a, a very high growth startup. I had two young children who needed my attention, uh, who I wanted to give attention to. And I got to the state where I felt I was actually doing a bad job of everything. So I was trying to be everything to my career. I was trying to be everything as a mother and, and probably doing a, a, a not as good a job of either as I could. And I took a decision at that time that actually, um, there is a moment right now in my life where I need to do things differently and prioritize. So I ended up deliberately leaving the UK, leaving behind this high growth startup um, that had grown very, very fast. We were employing 300 people in six different cities by the time I left the UK and coming to New Zealand to recalibrate and to focus more. I still worked a part time because I, I know for me, I need that mental stimulation, but I climbed down the career ladder massively and went from being the CEO of the fastest growing tech company in the UK uh, as a founding director of that organization to doing 20 hours a week for a small charity to give back really, but to also have that time to be the best version I could be for my children. Mm. And I think, you know, being self-aware of that is so important. I could have carried on doing what I was doing and who knows how it would have affected my children or not. But the point is I don't need to know because I made a choice to say, right, I have got a finite kind of box in terms of energy and hours in the day because I do need to sleep I do need to eat I need to do other things what in my life right now do I need to do differently to be the best version by the things that are important to me and at that point I had a realization that actually my children were the most important things to me and yes personally selfishly I need to work but I don't need to be doing you know the 100 hour weeks in a startup which is fun and amazing but I'm not being the best version for my children and it's honestly the best thing I ever did the best decision I ever made because I climbed right down the corporate ladder had those 20 hours a week that I was kind of stimulating my my mind and and I learned um I learned the charity world for the first time as well that was really incredible and from there I ended up becoming the CEO of this organization when the children were a bit older and mm. they were then you know they were involved in the New Zealand um incredible lifestyle and were settled and yeah so definitely I have learned to apply what I'm saying about work and the the discipline of focus and the discipline of kind of the boundary of what you it, you know I always talk about this um, I'm going, going a bit off piece now but I think it's a really interesting um, concept I talk about the dignity graph so you imagine a bar graph and you have a bar graph and I have a bar graph the next person has a bar graph and all the bar graphs should be the same height how we make them up and how we fill them, which is I call the dignity graph, is entirely different. We're different people, you and I. I mean, I don't know you that well, but I'm sure we're different people. And, you know, there are, there were stages in my life where my career would have filled the, 
um, you know, back before I moved to New Zealand, the biggest part of my part of my dignity bar graph. And then there were, you know, then children came along and they're trying to, you know, compete for that. So then I had to adjust my bar graph for that period of my life where actually my children had to make up the bulk of that graph, but I still wanted to work. So I had part of that. I'm still interested in skiing. I'm still interested in all the other things. And that's how I filled my dignity bar graph. Now my children are older. They don't need me as much. I can put so much more into work and into giving back and to the things I do, mentoring people. And that's what now is probably the biggest part of my hourly um, investment into my dignity bar graph. Children are still there, of course, they always will be. My dog's still there, my skiing's still there, you know? But that's kind of how I look at it. And I think you should have this bar graph that can ebb and flow depending on the different stages of your life. Mm, yeah, I love that concept so much. I heard something very similar recently as well, actually. It was, they explained it in like a, um, it was a boat. And so you have like a shipping container and you have different kind of containers on the boat that, um, uh, represent different parts of your life and you don't want to have only one container on the boat because if a hole gets in that container and ultimately the boat the the ship sinks and so you want to kind of diversify I suppose the different areas in your life and make sure you have an awareness of what's important to you so that you can spread out your time in a way that makes sense and actually makes you happy and doesn't take away from any other part of your life too much to the point where it um, impacts your own well-being and I think that it's a really, really admirable and also reassuring thing to hear from you because it's quite a hard choice to stop and reflect and be like, is this working for me? And then after deciding, no, it's not, kind of becoming comfortable with that uh, realisation and then making a decision to change it. I mean, I'm sure it was not easy to go from being in this extremely fast-paced, intense environment to just slowing down from a career point of view um, considerably to then sort of have to work your way back up in a whole different space that would not have been an easy choice for you but it meant something to you and it was important in another part of your life and I think it's a really reassuring thing to hear that so that other people can feel like making those big decisions are not only possible but necessary to get to a place that is actually going to make sense and align with the kind of life you want to live yeah totally and I have to say that the analogy of the um, the ship is way better than my bar graph you can say I'm a mathematician but I love that, that is um, and but you're 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 right Sarah that um not only is it really important and difficult I, I, let's just say it is really difficult you know you look at I had put I had poured everything into my career and I climbed the career ladder and then I took taken a massive risk and, and um, was a founding director of a company that then grew very fast. And, but, and it, so, yes, scary to suddenly go, I'm leaving all of that behind at a point where it could have been life changing from a financial perspective, let's say, had we listed or and et cetera, et cetera. But it was the right thing to do at the time and not only the right thing to do at the time, but in the long term, it was the best thing to do. Because I think mm -hmm. for me and I think for many others, and I hope people you know, take courage from this, is yes, I stepped down the career ladder, but then I propelled up so much stronger because I was in a better version. I was a better mm -hmm. version of me doing what was right for me as well. That meant that I don't think I'd be now where I'm in my career had I not made that step at the right time and, and, and given that space that I needed for the other parts of um my containers that I needed in my life yeah no definitely this concept comes up a lot uh in a few different things I've been reading recently in different areas of life where often the harder decision in the short term is always 
the better result for the long term and I think that happens in so many different areas and business being a good example of that where like you can make a quick decision now about something and it solves the problem really fast but does it actually like help and contribute to the solution long term of the goal and create that impact you want. Absolutely. And that's something I'm really, really strong on and much to sometimes a frustration of some of my colleagues, because it's easy to put a sticky plaster over something and just to move on because we're all busy. And I'm like, uh, uh, uh. let's take it back down and solve the problem, which is going to take probably five times as long now, but we will be, you know, much, much stronger for the foreseeable future. And for us, every one of those decisions comes back to impact at the end of the day, because impact for for unicef is not just this year but it's the long term as i said there are some wicked problems in the world around climate change and mental health etc child protection that are not going away anytime soon so we have to be here for the future in the best version than we can be if we're going to actually have a chance of having that positive impact for children around the world so so important i love that concept yeah Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, And I suppose as we come to the close of this podcast, I'd love to hear from your perspective. Like to create impact is something that I'm definitely passionate about doing in my life. And I want to kind of lead a life that where I'm thinking and I'm conscious and I'm intentional about the things I'm doing, not only for me, but for the people around me and for the world that I'm contributing to. Are there any kind of lessons that you've learned in addition to what we've already spoken about in like the charity space that someone can take into their own life to have that impact and to try and contribute to a world that is better, you know, beyond just say donating to something, but also uh, in that sense as well? Yeah, there's a tool that I often use, and I don't know if you've heard about it, it's a Japanese philosophy, um, so this is a very practical way of doing it, called Ikigai. Have you heard of Ikigai? Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny because um, I grew up in Mexico and I did karate to a very, um, I was really lucky that I had a really, really senior Japanese sensei who taught me the philosophy of Ikigai way before it became something that you read in books now. This is yeah. like I'm talking a long time ago. <laughs> and um And it's something that I'd always kind of, it stuck with me from a really young age because I always felt that it was a really good tool for how to apply anything to your life. And, you know, if you know about the philosophy, you'll know about the fact that if you can work out what the world needs, you know, what you're passionate about, what you're good at, and what's sustainable, i.e. you can do this a long term, that is your ikigai. And if you can find that, that is what you can apply for your life. So, you know, if you're, you know, in my case, I'm passionate about, as you've heard, children, women's empowerment. What am I good at? Um, I'm good at, as a leader, I believe. I think I'm an I'm a inclusive, empowering leader, and that's what I can bring to the world and using the tool of business for good. What does the world need? The world needs a huge amount of, um, a huge amount of investment in this space because of the things that we've just talked about. And for me, the sustainable part right now is actually doing that as my day job. But it might not be. It could be that I'm working for a large telecommunications company right now. And the sustainable piece is, is that I can earn enough money to take that money and the money that I, um, my um, free money that I have as, as a result of my lifestyle to actually give back to an organization like UNICEF. So it doesn't, you know, you can have it in, you can mold it in different ways. But I think for me, the three things that are, um, that are solid are in my ikigai are um, what I'm good at, what I'm passionate about and what the world needs. And then making it sustainable can change depending on my stage of life and, and what I choose to do with my day job as an example. So I think for anyone who out there hasn't gone and um, spent time looking and finding their own ikigai, I would always recommend doing that because it's such a grounding way of knowing how do you apply that to your life. And it will depend on your circumstance and what, what you're doing and what you're doing. And it could be 
that you want to go and volunteer and do something. It could be that actually your ikigai is about spending time and having a coffee every now and then with people that you know need that support and being heard that they can do it. I mean, it, it can be a multiple of things. It's, it's, it's not one size fits all. But I think by really understanding what your passions are, what you're good at and what the world needs, the, 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 the fourth one will always become quite obvious in terms of your, your world and, and, and where you're at. Mm, I think that's a beautiful place to leave this podcast. Thank you so much, Michelle, for your time and just for your contributions as well. Like we really appreciate it. I have loved hearing your perspective on just life generally as well as how you run your professional life. And I think it's it's really been inspiring to hear about UNICEF and the UNICEF mission and learn so much more than I ever knew before. Um, and I hope that I know that so many people listening would have taken the same thing. So again, just thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Sarah. And thank you for what you do. You know, you, you wake up each morning and decide to do this. And I think that is a huge investment in society. So in our community, so yeah, well done to you as well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The One Up Project. If you want to find more stuff just like this, check out our other apps or follow us at The One Up Project on Instagram or TikTok. See you there.